welcome to the next episode of the RJC podcast, Creating Beautiful. Today, it's my absolute honor and joy to welcome Jean-Christophe Babin, the group CEO of Bulgari, a brand that is synonymous with beauty and exquisite luxury. Mr. Babin has been leading the brand for almost nine years now, and under his charismatic leadership, Bulgari has risen to new heights and reached some very significant milestones. I'm personally very excited about this conversation, and today we will talk about a range of topics. We'll discuss some recent successes and some time-honored ways in which brands can make a meaningful and lasting positive impact. And without further ado, Mr. Babin, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. It's really my delight to congratulate you and the entire Bulgari team for becoming the first and only player in the global jewelry scene who can claim to produce 100% of its jewels with gold coming from certified sources from the 1st of January, 2022. And I think the listeners, but also myself, would really love to hear about the journey that led Bulgari to this very important and commendable milestone. And I consider this really as true leadership you know, for the whole industry to learn from. So if you could talk a bit about the challenges you encountered along the way, that would be really inspiring. Thank you. Well, Iris, first, uh, thank you so much. I mean, uh, to give the honor to Bulgari, I mean, to participate to this uh, podcast. I think it's a very good initiative from NGC, as uh, we are, I think, at the turning point, I mean, when it comes to sustainability, circular economy. And as Bulgari, uh, just to provide a bit of perspective before commenting more precisely on uh, the gold, um, it's a process where we, we started pretty early uh, in times when even the world sustainability was uh, hardly ever used, when today, I mean, there's no day without uh, meetings, debates on sustainability. Uh, and sustainability and, and circular economy, I have to say, have been uh, since long for Bulgari. Uh, a major priority, which has accelerated recently with, I would say, two major factors. The first is probably uh, Gen Z, uh, which is much more demanding when it comes to uh, the behind the scenes, uh, whatever it is. I mean, it can be, I mean, the mining conditions, it can be uh, the true craftsmanship in a workshop, it can be uh, how uh, honest, meaning by that sincere is a testimonial uh, joining campaign like Zendaya. So I would say that this authenticity uh, transparency factor uh, is uh, shared across many generations, but I should say that Gen generation is even more uh, demanding and interested in to understand it. And then the COVID uh, has accelerated the process as many other things, uh, probably because, you know, uh, throughout the COVID, the people have tried to better uh, understand the sense of life, uh, the purpose, uh, and, and they've been uh, really accelerating uh, and more curious about it. So for us, I mean, it's uh, for gold, it's a process which started uh, in 2015. So uh, it has been a, a long journey, I have to say. Uh, with, I mean, uh, the first step has been to uh, to use uh, recycled gold uh, more and more in percentage of our consumption, uh, which is not uh, obviously, I mean, uh, exactly uh, the uh, certification in terms of origin, but at least 
it's uh, a great step in terms of circular economy because basically uh, recycling and recycled gold avoid you to further dig into the earth's resources and reuse, I mean, uh, precious materials, which is unalterable and uh, whatever, I mean, the period uh, when it was mined uh, has exactly the same aspect and value. And so across those seven years uh, from recycled gold, which has become 99% uh, basically of our uh, needs, which is huge. It means that there's virtually no uh, jewel or watch from Bulgari uh, with new gold. Uh, we uh, have engaged into the second step, which was not only recycled, but where, where does it come from? And this has been a, a long because obviously uh, it's easier somehow, I mean, uh, to get that certification when you use new gold. Uh, when it's recycled, obviously, uh, you have really to dig uh, deep into the past. Uh, and this is why it has taken that long. But I think uh, we're very happy because for us, you know, the certification uh, couldn't go without the circular economy. So that because for us, sustainability and circular economy are, I would say, equally important. And this has been really uh, the journey. And uh, really, uh, I think that the world management in our supply chain, doing uh, product development, have really made a huge effort uh, collectively, and I think it's a real collective success, so that uh, from a normal jeweler, we become uh, ideally, I mean, uh, an exemplary when it comes to uh, our commitment to our planet, to our environment, and also transparency to, to our client, because we believe that this transparency, uh, which was something uh, which was underlying 10 years ago, today uh, is extremely important. As the same way that they want to make sure that we craft in Italy, that we do it manually. Uh, and so it's part of an overall uh, corporate social responsibility approach. Thank you. Thank you. And it's great to see those insights from you, because as you know, last year in November, the Beers brought this insight report on what's going to change. And everything you're telling me, it's, it's tripling that effect, you know, leaders with purpose, uh, People want to work for a company with a leader that really drives that change, a CEO that wants to put those values into action. So it's nice that also Bulgaria is putting so much efforts into the wider supply chain to bring everyone along that journey. So I also applaud your sustainability team for being uh, so committed. Very proactive and also, I mean, working very closely with your, your teams. So that, I mean, all across the value chain, not only the gold uh, or the platinum, but also, I mean, obviously the diamonds, but uh, more and more the color gems, we manage really uh, to, to have full transparency on the origins, on the conditions of mining, on the uh, conditions also of recycling. And uh, this is really a growing event. I think that under your leadership and with the proactive participation of the, the key brands, uh, we can really... Uh, Take that dimension of transparency, ethics, sustainability to, to a new level, which will do very good to our industry. Uh, as for uh, the clients of the post-COVID slash their generation, uh, it makes a difference. And they are right, because you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's good for the planet, it's good for the future. And, uh, and so it's part of an overall scheme, which makes a company not only expert in crafting jewelry, but also a good citizen of that planet which obviously is very inspirational internally for employees. I mean, they are proud that we are one of the leaders when it comes to corporate social responsibility. And obviously, uh, 
today, one of the main challenges is attracting talents. And talents, more and more, uh, are uh, making their choice not only on the reputation of the company for its expertise, uh, for its financial resources versus its ambitious goals, but also the way, I mean, this company behaves uh, as a citizen, uh, behaves also as a family, uh, expect, I mean, a company to be caring, a company to be fair, uh, to respect gender equality, uh, to promote diversity. And obviously, if you are on that side, uh, this is a plus. Uh, for that generation, I mean, to, to join you rather than to join other companies. So I think uh, internally it's very important and externally, of course, it becomes more and more an argument that, you know, when you have to choose as a client between two brands, it's good to know that uh, our goal is 100% certified. It, it's surely something which clients like. Uh, additionally, it's 100% recycled or 99%, which is is all good. So, you know, when you hesitate between two brands, uh, which happens because uh, we're uh, selling, uh, uh, I would say, craftsmanship, which is pretty costly, uh, this dimension is making more and more uh, difference. But I think the internal dimension is not to be uh, underestimated. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. No, no. And, and, and you're so right. Uh, we, we need also the brands to be aspirational. And that's why we're really happy that, first of all, that you have strong representation at board level, but also within the Colored Gemstones this year, we want to be much more actively present uh, to indeed get the whole industry on board to drive sustainability for, forward. So we'll definitely be knocking on your door for some of those initiatives. Please, no, knock but... loud and often because <laughs> you know that Bulgari is a master of colored gemstones. Uh, but all jewelers are using uh, colored gemstones. Probably Bulgari use more than any other. Uh, but fact is that uh, most of the other uh, high-profile brands are using Gold Gemstone and are all agreeing upon the priority uh, to provide, I mean, uh, the final client with the same transparency on Gold Gemstone's uh, uh, core rather than uh, regime traceability uh, as you, you have done so successfully on Diamond and as we do now on, on Gold. So this is, I think, a very high priority and all brands are concurring. So working together, uh, I'm confident we're going to bring uh, gradually because there are so many, but at least starting with, I mean, the main uh, ruby, sapphire, emeralds, uh, which are considered as the most important one, that uh, we can quickly uh, come up with uh, concrete achievements. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. And we'll definitely get back for the people that are listening. Uh, there are some big initiatives this year happening because indeed, uh, as you say, uh, Mr. Babin, 95% of the colored gemstone business is, uh, is artisanal and, and we believe we have a huge responsibility uh, to bring that industry also uh, into the decade of sustainability and work together with so many great organizations that are committed to that cause. We talked about people and the importance indeed of people you know, being inspired to work for organizations that put values into action. But let's talk about planet. And in 2019, Bulgari announced a plastic-free policy and manifesto, very ambitious. Could you tell us a little bit more about what this entails? And I'm also really curious to hear about what kind of innovative strategies and alternative solutions that you had to bring in in order to phase out plastic. Well, you know, uh, we very often talk about, I mean, the sustainability, the 
recyclable uh, capabilities of the, the core product, which is a ring, a bracelet, name it. But de facto, we are probably, since uh, mankind exists, uh, the industry with uh, the least footprint at the end of the day, uh, because uh, for, for mining, you don't need first uh, a lot of energy. And then uh, once uh, we've crafted the jewel, uh, 99% of the jewel can be recycled into another jewel. Uh, so uh, even before we talked about circular economy, the jewelry industry was pioneering it <laughs> since ever. And eventually uh, we realized that uh, the footprint we, we left behind uh, was not so much uh, in the product itself, but more uh, downstream from the packaging to uh, the boutique. And so we have been working a lot, I mean, on the packaging, because the packaging uh, is uh, far more, I mean, uh, important when it comes, I mean, historically uh, to the usage of non-recyclable rather than uh, products or chemicals which were living really for centuries when it comes to plastic, I mean, uh, their marks are on the planet. And so we engage in a very aggressive program uh, without compromising on the beauty of the packaging because packaging is part of the ceremonial and it's very important in what's the jewelry that the packaging is really felt uh, by the client emotionally uh, that we as much it's an enhancer somehow of the beauty of the jewel. And so we re-challenge entirely, I mean, uh, this packaging without compromising uh, on the perceived quality but switching, you know, uh, from plastic to uh, 100% paper for the outer shell uh, and paper, which was also coming from uh, responsibly managed forests, so not any paper. Uh, we also, I mean, mixed it with uh, wood fiber and we obtained eventually a compound which uh, in touch, in uh, optical uh, filling is, is exactly the same as before. So it's and it took uh, 12 months of a lot of trials you know, before we could get the right balance between uh, those two, two materials. And obviously the internal parts were also you know, made of synthetic materials, which were substituted with 100% pure silk and uh, natural latex for rubber trees. And in both cases also uh, grown, uh, whether it's a silk or the latex, in responsibly managed uh, environments. So today we can say the rollout has started already one year ago and we're going to end uh, by the end of this year. 80% uh, of the Bulgari uh, packaging is really uh, plastic-free. And beyond the packaging, the company is plastic-free. Uh, you know, there's no more plastic bottle in Bulgari. We all use, I mean, uh, uh, dispensing machine, uh, whether you like it still or sparkling, but it's dispensed. Uh, we have a plastic uh, paper uh, goblets rather than uh, the glasses. And uh, even in hotels, I mean, if you you order a cocktail, the straw, I mean, is is made uh, from paper. There's no more plastic straw in a hotel. There's no, nothing. Plastic. So the plastic-free approach has been applied primarily and first to packaging because here we talk about 160,000 kg of plastic saved every year. So it's huge, especially when you think that part of it can end up into the oceans rather than, uh, and so be really a, a tough problem. But we have uh, applied this plastic free approach uh, at 360, uh, starting from our offices, our boutiques. Uh, so that, I mean, the company eventually uh, uses, uh, nobody, we have still some plastic left, I mean, 
in uh, fragrances packaging because it's, uh, for instance, the tap and the, uh, the pump are a bit difficult uh, to manufacture in different ways, but we are working hard, I mean, uh, to solve that. Uh, eventually, not only watch and jewelry, but also the other activities uh, like fragrances uh, with other plastic free. And uh, I was mentioning the other dimension, which is uh, which was leaving uh, a significant footprint, which is the arbolics. Uh, first, we have uh, several, I mean, more than 300. And jewelry uh, to really be resistible has to be lighted in a way which is very different from other luxuries like fashion, uh, usually requiring far more different lights. And we have managed uh, to reduce, I mean, through new technologies, uh, a lot of lead, obviously, uh, to reduce by 90% uh, the energy consumption in our boutiques in just five years, which again, I mean, uh, is part of sustainability, uh, is responsible. And uh, and now the next step, the vision, the dream, but we're going to have it there, is to have uh, in the future, wherever possible, 100% fully uh, sustainable stores. So that store that eventually leave no footprint. And we'll have a pilot in the US in 2024. It takes time. Uh, it's an investment. But we want absolutely, I mean, to push further the barrier of sustainability and apply really uh, sustainability not only to the product but also i mean uh, to everything surrounding the product which often leaves far more footprint than the product itself at least when it comes to a jewel yeah thank you uh, thank you jean christophe and i think it's really good for the people that will listen to this podcast because plastic is a huge issue for the industry you know from manufacturing to retail and, and that's why I believe it's important like brands like Bulgari that they can show that innovation is possible and that they can lead the way to have really a full sustainable model uh, to, uh, to work uh, on that. Now, we, we talked about climate and now we're going to talk about a topic very close to my heart, uh, gender. And in a recent Forbes piece, you said that it was women who sparked the brands making of men's watches. So I would love to hear the story behind this. And on a related note, could you share some thoughts on how leaders can promote and embed gender equality within the DNA of their organizations? Well, first, uh, you know, we are Italian and uh, it's well famous that uh, Italian ladies are, uh, we say in Italian, tosto, they are strong ladies, <laughs> they have strong character. I, I, I recognize, I acknowledge that fully. <laughs> Thank you. And we're very happy about that. And obviously, uh, when your core business is jewelry, uh, you, you, you need to understand women. Uh, and who better than a woman can understand other women? And therefore, uh, since generations, uh, women have been uh, really many. Uh, in a majority, uh, not only in our workshop, because you know this is not uh, something unusual as uh, we talk about uh, micro uh, mechanics or micro works, and obviously often ladies have smaller uh, and more skilled fingers. So it's it's not a surprise that in the jewelry workshop you, you find a, an important share of women, but. Uh, even more interestingly, because this is more typical uh, when it comes to executives, so not in the factories uh, or, let's say, uh, managing the factories. Um, worldwide, I mean, uh, putting all our departments together, we have close to 60% of the executives who are ladies. 
uh, starting with executive committee, which is about 50-50. And then down the, the chain, you know, uh, you find early ladies and uh, in the creative department, especially uh, for jewelry, our uh, creative director, Lucia, is obviously a lady, an Italian lady, a Roman Italian lady. So <laughs> this is very important. And working with Lucia, we have a team of uh, 10 designers uh, and nine out of 10 are, are ladies. And it's pretty representative of the fact that we, we sell a bit to men. Uh, so it's important to have also a men's sensibility. Uh, but I think it's uh, extremely important that uh, we, we have ladies really steering, especially in that category. But you find in Switzerland, I mean, most of the product marketing for watches uh, is feminine. It's true that we sell more ladies' watches uh, than most watch brands, which are a bit more masculine. But this, uh, let's say, gender equality in worry is, I would say, more than uh, respected. And within LVMH, who are amongst, let's say, the major companies, the one with the highest percentage already uh, in majority of ladies, to the point that uh, some men occasionally come to me because uh, we are becoming a minority. <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah that, that, that could be also a different dynamic then, but it's really good to understand from you when you talk about 60% at executive positions, you know, uh, that's very encouraging because we, uh, we've been working very closely with the RGC in partnership with BSR on understanding what are the barriers for women to continue to grow in an organization and indeed, if there's not a systematic approach to bringing women up to the executive level, it becomes very challenging. And so, uh, so it's it's good to hear those those facts and data about that. Yeah, you have also to, I mean, not only uh, to have it as an objective, uh, but to justify it somehow, because I mean, people have to understand why we make the choice. Also, to provide working conditions which are compatible with. Uh, often uh, dual responsibility of the lady, uh, which is uh, more systematic than for the man. Typically in Bulgaria, even before the COVID, we had already smart works, so which is facilitating. I mean, it's not uh, solving or fixing any issue, but when you have a family, uh, smart work can be also, I mean, uh, helpful uh, of better using your time, uh, especially if your time is to be split between running a business on the one end and uh, managing a family on the other. And so this is an example, uh, which obviously has intensified with COVID, but before COVID, we were already a smart work company. Uh, we have smart offices in Milan for uh, some of our uh, top executives are from Milan, Chateau to Rome or to Firenze. Uh, but we built, I mean, small offices in Milan so that if for family reasons uh, it was easier for them uh, to work from Milan, they had all facilities via Montenegro uh, in, uh, in the Milan smart office, which is one of the first in Italy. Uh, I mean, if you go to Ireland or to Silicon Valley, it's plenty of, but uh, in Italy it's, it's coming. But uh, also in that dimension, we have been quite pioneering, I mean, in uh, in building this kind of facility, which makes uh, gender equality much easier than uh, working very traditionally. Well, you, you touched upon COVID. I think what was also very impressive when, when COVID hit us, we saw in the early days of the pandemic that also Bulgaria was at the forefront of mobilizing resources and, uh, and clearly showing a big heart for people and caring for your country and beyond. 
Um, could you just tell us a little bit about, you know, what kind of actions you undertook with Bulgari? Um, I think people would love to hear about that. And knowing some people at the Spallanzani Hospital, which is in terms of virology, uh, the most advanced in Italy, uh, the discussion with the director, and she told me that indeed, I mean, uh, she had known that, that they were, and they were needed, I mean, some material to really further explore uh, that uh, the virus, which we financed, uh, because, you know, uh, public funds are not unlimited, and often uh, in emergency, uh, it takes some red tape when it comes directly from administration, whereas a private company can sign a check overnight so that you get, I mean, the microscope. So we invested to help them to speed up, I mean, their discovery of this virus, which uh, they were within the first ones uh, to, to understand in terms of dynamics uh, on how it acted in the body, uh, which was the first step, obviously, toward uh, first... Uh, prototypes of potential vaccination because we have to understand first how the virus behaves before you can really decide what uh, you want to, to to neutralize for instance the proteins or, or, or whatever and and then as a second step when we had to close uh, our operation before then lockdown uh, came so therefore couldn't sell we decided that uh, being specialists through perfume of uh, manufacturing alcoholic base, uh, we could participate uh, really to uh, uh, the fight and the initial weeks uh, and months in Europe, you remember the government's hospitals were totally uh, caught by surprise. There were absolutely no capabilities when it came, I mean, to sanitizing gels, to, to masks, to, there was nothing. And therefore, uh, in just one week, I mean, we, we came up with a couple of potential formulations which we submitted to the Italian health authorities because they had to be certified. So we were very fast, especially because we told them that we were planning to uh, give them for free as many quantities uh, they would need in their intensive care units. So we started to manufacture that Bulgari sanitizing gel. Uh, reusing, uh, again, it's a bit circular economy because we had some inventory of small bottles which you find in the hotel amenities, we changing the label, the tap uh, became really very uh, appreciated because uh, the medical staff was really needing something in the pocket all the time. Because it's one thing, you know, to be in the intensive care unit with a big pump and that, uh, but then you leave it, you go to the next room and there's nothing. So we wanted really something which was individual and this was a request of the hospital. So we started uh, crafting uh, in the, and, and, uh, and our own people, I can tell you, were so proud, even though the factory Lodi was in the most impacted zone in Italy, they were so proud uh, that the company, instead of signing a check to whoever, uh, was doing it directly because they were feeling that they were protagonists of defending their families, their community, as a citizens of COVID uh, directly uh, taking risks themselves because uh, many of them were at risk because uh, Lodi zone uh, near Crema, Bergamo was uh, among the worst. And then this, we extended it to Switzerland uh, and uh, eventually to the UK, which was the last, but eventually most uh, severely uh, hit country by, by the COVID. And in parallel in other countries, uh, we took also other steps, for instance, when we had to close our Tokyo restaurant uh, for some reason, uh, we decided that the team would continue to cook 
uh, but to prepare uh, three lunch boxes for uh, all the doctors and nurses who were working in the two major intensive care units uh, against COVID in the Tokyo hospital. So we tried to uh, protect, I mean, the staff uh, in Europe and in Asia to provide the staff, which was under very severe psychological pressure, with a break. And the break was uh, Michelin starred uh, lunchbox, which, you know, uh, was a kind of uh, moment of uh, of pleasure in, in days, which were really tough with uh, all the medical staff. And eventually, as a last step, uh, because we know that uh, COVID uh, would evolve, then we couldn't even imagine when we started the virus, we found that it would evolve so much <laughs> and so quickly. So in that, we were pretty well advised by Spanish So we created a multi-million dollars fund, um, uh, financing research at Spanish in Italy, Oxford in the UK, and Rockefeller in, in the US. And also um, financing scholarship uh, for students who were extremely talented, but not necessarily for family reason background. So financial resources to go further uh, into research, which is necessary, obviously, for uh, improving uh, sanitary condition, health. And uh, so our help with that fund was not only uh, to, to support research institutes directly into their testing, but also, I mean, to support the best students designed by those institutes who couldn't afford to move on. So they would have been forced otherwise to become doctors immediately uh, when the real potential uh, would be rather to be scientists. But to be scientists needs further years and investments. And so packing that uh, together, yes, we have been, I think, one of the company most protagonists. And again, I mean, uh, back to sustainability uh, gold certification, a lot of pride inside the company uh, that uh, even though we were suffering financially from the COVID, we were investing on the other end against COVID, not only money, uh, the, the virus reform, but also our people. I mean, our people went every morning to the and uh, the more we were moving, the more people were willing to join. And this is how we could, from Italy, extend, I mean, the benefit of the gel to Switzerland, to the UK, uh, to all our stores worldwide as well. So uh, really uh, uh, trying, I mean, to do something at a time where uh, not thinking out of the box, you would just have sent your people back home and waited for better well, times. I, what I like so much about this example is, you know, it's you're so right. It's so easy to say, well, we'll donate a few millions and, you know, just go on with it and do something with it. But here it's really, you're bringing everyone along. You know, it's like the heart of the of the Bulgari brand saying, this is what we're doing for society and for people. And I really like the fact of the Michelin uh, food, bringing some happiness to those doctors and nurses. Yeah, but you know, it, it matters. It matters, of course because it matters. severe, yeah. I mean, psychological yeah. stress. Yeah. This is really a break which re-energizes you, which uh, raises your spirit, and then you go back to another shift yeah. of four or five hours in very difficult yeah. conditions. But yeah. it helps. And I think it also shows respect and kindness, no? To say, this is what we want to do for you in these tough times. So we used your example in, in several of our reports, and, uh, and we communicated a lot because we followed very closely, especially what the brands were doing in these, uh, in these very strange uh, times, but times of a lot of emotions. And I think it gives me a good bridge to the next question, uh, Jean-Christophe, because we talk about CEOs and purpose-driven leadership being 
a force for positive change. And uh, it's very remarkable to see indeed the meaningful impact that you have uh, taken as a CEO to lead Bulgari and to really bring sustainability at the heart of your culture. As sometimes people tell me, what does sustainability mean? Well, it's, it has to be living in the, you know, people have to breed it. It can't just be a sustainability policy. So for some of the leaders, or I would say the, the start of designers, we, we get a lot of um, attraction now from young designers that call the RJC. What would you advise them in their leadership, how they can be more impactful on ESG and sustainability? Because especially when you're a young designer and you're just starting, you know, you, you actually almost have no money to start working, right? Economic viability is your priority. So what are the tips and the tricks that you can give our younger listeners? Well, uh, younger listeners, <laughs> well, I think, I think obviously we all work because uh, financially we, we have to sustain ourselves. <laughs> uh, but I think uh, even more important is really the sense of purpose. And uh, what we've tried in Bulgaria is really to have a very clear, simple, and meaningful sense of purpose, uh, which is uh, sharing the, the joy of crafting the gems of nature. And uh, in that uh, mission purpose or sense of purpose, uh, you have just keywords which are very simple to understand and which in turn uh, are translated into actions which speak and resonate to those young designers. But, but not only so there is a sharing which I think today is a major expectation and value. We are not any longer working in silos. Uh, we are working as a collectivity. So the sharing is important. The joy relates to obviously uh, the chance that uh, with craftsmanship uh, we we can uh, turn rough gems, uh, flowers into great perfumes, uh, ingredients into Michelin food, uh, whatever. But uh, the thread between all our activities is this capability uh, to craft the best of nature and to take it to the next level to make it even more beautiful and diverse. And this is obviously a source of joy because uh, we are very privileged. And then the gems of nature, and here comes uh, gems, but not only uh, gems for jewelry, but a flower, jasmine can be a gem, obviously, uh, some skins we are using, I mean, for leather good. Uh, accessory object. This is a, another thread between all our activities. Everything we do starts from, from uh, our depths of nature. And nature obviously means uh, sustainability, uh, because if uh, it's not deeply encored, I mean, into uh, your mission purpose, uh, obviously you pay less attention. If you are conscious that everything you do uh, joyfully and sharing it uh, is about, I mean, glorifying, uh, elevating what Mother Earth has been crafting uh, for millions of years in some cases, or for a season if it's a flower, uh, trying to extract, I mean, from uh, those rough gems, rough flowers, I mean, the, the, the essence, the good essence, uh, then obviously it becomes very meaningful, uh, very exciting for young designers. Uh, because it's not only about having uh, projects, it's not only uh, about designing a new jewel which is going to uh, create value for the company, for the shareholder, and, and, and get them a good bonus, because this matters, obviously. But this provides them with really a sense of purpose, uh, which is powerful, meaningful, 
and goes much beyond, you know, uh, pure numbers, uh, salary, sales, profits, bonus, which are obviously nice and uh, mandatory to a company, but you cannot motivate people to join, to stay, to grow, only uh, with the money they generate, the money they will make. Uh, they need really to feel that what they do uh, matters. And it matters, I mean, beyond uh, financial gains. Uh, in the, when they wake up in the morning, uh, the idea that they're going to uh, glorify nature uh, in a sustainable way, uh, ethically, uh, with transparency, is obviously extremely motivational. And obviously, then we have to pay them properly. We have to reward, I mean, achievements. Uh, we have to generate profit for our shareholders. Uh, but we do it even better than uh, upstream. And as a first step, there is this very strong sense of purpose, which really aggregates our people uh, with a common goal, which goes really beyond numbers. And this is something that I think companies are understanding more and more, uh, which is often, I mean, uh, the main reason for joining a company. Yeah. It's interesting you say so because we get a lot of people writing to the RJC or looking for jobs and uh, and actually we get a lot of questions also about brands even, you know, what do they do, where can we find information, what's happening in that space on the jewelry. So I also strongly believe that purpose will be the only way uh, forward. And my final question, since this is the first episode of the new year 2022, I would love to conclude our conversation, Jean-Christophe, by asking you what excites you most about the future of the global jewelry industry? Well, you know, when you think about jewelry, uh, it's fascinating because it's, it's, it's the first luxury ever on Earth, uh, 15,000 years. Uh, and it's also the most universal because whatever the period, whatever the region, whatever the culture, whatever the religion, uh, jewelry has ever been associated to the turning points of life. Uh, initially, because obviously gold uh, was not alterable and so it had a value, and then it was rare. So uh, not rusting and rare uh, made it immediately precious. And the same somehow for uh, gems, especially, I mean, the major ones, which are very hard, uh, they had initially uh, functional values, which, which were useful. and. and but because of rarity, from useful, they became precious. So jewelry is the most visceral uh, in all luxury uh, owners. And has ever been uh, connected because of the rarity, because of the preciousness uh, to those turning points of life, which initially were uh, mostly mating. Uh, a man met a woman uh, and it was common, but everywhere, which is remarkable. Uh, to end up with a beautiful ring, a necklace in gold, with a pearl, with, with a diamond, with uh, an amethyst, name it, but very similar. And this is quite unique because, you know, for instance, uh, uh, the fashion bag is not something which popped up uh, even, I mean, two centuries ago, you had no, <laughs> and, and not in all cultural civilizations. This, which makes jewelry, I think, uh, and then I get to the outlook, uh, fascinating is that it's really viscerally encored, I think, in, uh, in mankind. Uh, and this worshipping uh, of preciousness, of rarity, uh, of beauty, is also further uh, exacerbated by the fact that it's timeless uh, in value. Uh, 
which is also unique. There's no other luxury which guarantees you that in uh, 10 years, in 100 years, what you are purchasing today will have a value. So the only question is how much, uh, which you don't know, because uh, I mean, we know that some gems, for instance, coral gems have appreciated crazily over the last decade, uh, when others like diamonds have uh, a more steady growth. So it's difficult, but anyway, it will be valuable. It's, it will be because it's 15,000 years, it has been. And as demographics are increasing and as the resources and the importance, I mean, of sustainability and circular economy, it will most likely gain value. And we don't know when and how much, but it will gain value. And this is fascinating because uh, it makes our industry the probably only one in luxury where you can surely beat if you get into that industry as a young talent or if you join it, I mean, uh, in a more mature step of your life, that uh, if you are uh, motivated, if you are creative, if you are passionate, the sky is the limit. Uh, because the demographics, we all know, I mean, uh, will further uh, develop. The GDP per capita uh, is obviously uneven, but generally speaking, uh, except for the COVID year, it's growing every year. So the world is indeed richer year after year. And meaning that, that, that when the world is richer, discretionary money is more and more because uh, at a certain point, that means uh, you cannot eat twice, uh, you cannot <laughs> have 10 houses. So uh, you, you end up, I mean, uh, indulging, I mean, two experiences. It can be an hotel at Bulgari uh, on the night at Bulgari Hotel. Uh, or, and then adding to that, uh, the most recent revolution in jewelry has been really uh, the feminine power, meaning uh, the massive entry of ladies on the, the work market, uh, which 50 years ago was uh, not as massive as today. Today, all women are working. That's in most countries, you know, it's uh, 50 years ago. I remember my mother, she was one of the first out of university and uh, in her ministry, uh, 95% of executives were men. So most ladies uh, were not buying jewelry, but were receiving jewelry. Today still, and thanks God, they continue to receive jewelry because we gentlemen, we love to, to, to show, I mean, our passion, I mean, through uh, timeless uh, craftsmanship, but on the other end, uh, and more and more, they are uh, indulging themselves and celebrating themselves regardless of uh, their husband, their fiancé, their boyfriend. Uh, and on top of what he does, uh, to celebrate their own pleasure, their own uh, recognitions. And this is obviously accelerating the market growth. Um, and then there is a the last phenomenon, which I think is uh, also, uh, but more, uh, let's say, fostering the growth of initial brand is that uh, versus 50 years ago, uh, most people are becoming nomadics or nomads. Uh, when before, I mean, uh, you were born uh, in Amsterdam, in New York, in Tokyo, from parents from that city, and you would. Uh, grow that city uh, and then work in that city and therefore when you had to buy I mean an engagement ring you were going to the family jewel. Uh, today it's a bit different because you are born in Paris, educated in New York, get your first job in Tokyo so you don't even know or remember uh, the family jewel. but you know Bulgari, you know Tiffany, you 
or Cartier, and, and they are the new uh, trusted, I would say, uh, in jewelry, because trust is very important. Uh, jewelry is probably, uh, and watches also, but more jewelry, uh, the luxury uh, industry where the trust factor is the most important because, you know, except if you are an expert, it's very difficult. I mean, between two emeralds, uh, to understand why this one is costing uh, 1,000 per carat and this one is costing 100,000 per carat. Uh, therefore, the trust factor is important and the brands today, because of the nomadic evolution of society, are becoming the only trusted. Uh, and as they are global, obviously, more and more people tend to go to the brands. So the brands are, additionally to uh, the more visceral factors I was mentioning, accelerating further the growth of jewelry, because clients are reinsured. If I buy my ring in New York from Bulgari, and if after uh, whatever five years uh, it's it's a bit too small, I go back to Bulgari and then I would be in Paris, but it's not an issue. And uh, Bulgari will rework it so that I have one size more. Uh, because in Milwaukee, whatever I mean, uh, I need one size more. And, uh, and and this means that the outlook for the industry, I think, is really. Uh, extraordinary also because uh, as i mentioned we are structurally sustainable more than any other luxury industry uh, we have made huge progress i mean when it comes uh, to the chain of custody uh, in terms of traceability and therefore uh, we should benefit more than any other luxury industry to the appetite for beauty for the appetite for uh, Emotional experiences or the appetite uh, of indulging uh, into exceptional uh, craftsmanship because what we do is often close to art. Uh, and therefore, I think uh, this industry uh, is not only uh, the oldest one, but probably the one still with the highest uh, personal development potential. And then uh, beside the woman power, uh, you have all the masculine segment, which so far uh, has not been uh, developed. It starts, I mean, many brands, Bulgar included, are uh, moving from feminine to unisex and then from unisex to masculine, which, so uh, making a long story short, I see a, a very, very high potential. Uh, not only of growth overall, but also of creative growth. Uh, and I think this is what makes jewelry very different uh, from any other luxury industry. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jean-Christophe, for this uh, really meaningful and inspiring conversation uh, today. Uh, and I also wanted to take the opportunity to thank you because you were one of our uh, key leaders in our Create Beautiful campaign that we will be uh, sharing uh, this year with our 1,600 companies. And that's really at the heart what we believe is important. We are working in an industry of beauty and emotions. And behind that beauty, we need to show that we do care for people and planet and purpose. So thank Absolutely. you so much. Iris, thank you. It's always a pleasure. And uh, thank you to the LGC for all the initiatives. And uh, you have our full support that we further, I mean, uh, evolve and provide, I mean, the transparency that, that uh, the clients are so much interested in. Thank you.